So let's go to him now in prayer and ask him just very simply to be with us in what we're about to do. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is simple. What we have not, we pray you'd give us. What we know not, we pray you'd teach us. And what we are not, we pray that you would make us. And we pray that you would do that for Christ's sake and on account of him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, many Christians think, or maybe worse, have been taught to think that if they do the right things, if they establish the proper disciplines, that if they are inside the will of God for their lives, then things will go well for them in this life. A lot of people in the church have a perspective that sounds a lot like some version of Christian karma rather than biblical truth. You know, if I do this, I will get this. It's kind of a quid pro quo with God. If I have a good, quiet time this morning, my day is going to go swell. If I'm faithful in this, then the Lord will bless me this way. And my life will look this way. People quote verses quite a bit out of context, like Romans 8.28, assuming that it means that everything is going to work out for them in life. And then for good measure, they slap it on the refrigerator. People think in these ways about the church broadly, too. It's not just individually that we think this way. You know, if the church would just get things right. Now, to be very clear, I mean, we strive to get it right according to God's word. But sometimes we talk as though if we get it right, the church would be the dominant voice in American culture. As though that's something the Lord has promised us in his word. That the church would be the majority culture. All of this to say, we often have a very short-sighted and very earth-bound perspective on our lives and on the purposes of God. So let's look to the book. Let's look to God's word. What has God said about these things? We're going to look today at chapters 39, 40, and 41 of Genesis. We read them earlier in the service already. My plan for our time together in the Word is to consider chapters 39 and 40 and then offer a reflection. Then I want to consider chapter 41 and offer a reflection and then a brief conclusion. So it's plan for our time. We're going to begin by looking at chapters 39 and 40. We will survey these together. Chapter 39 first. Joseph, at this point, is in Egypt. You remember that he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he was bought by a powerful and wealthy man named Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And we are told that the Lord is with Joseph. And so, Joseph, because the Lord is with him, makes a very favorable impression on his master. Potiphar's household is blessed greatly because Joseph is in it. Potiphar, as a result of that, gives Joseph a lot of liberty and a lot of authority in the household. Joseph is overseeing quite literally everything. And as you read these first, I don't know, half dozen verses or so, it's like Moses, the author of Genesis, is laying it on thick. There's no confusion. Like, Joseph is crushing it. 
as we often like to say, every time he pulls the lever, it's trip seven. It's going great. We read this. I mean, you read it. It's going so well that if you're like me, you're reading it kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it's going to. We're told in the latter part of verse six that Joseph is a good looking guy. It's the only time that a man is described in these exact words, that he was handsome in form and appearance. And so whenever the scripture goes out of its way to give these kind of physical descriptions, we should notice them because it's going to be significant in what's going to transpire, and it will be here. We're told that Potiphar's wife begins to make advances on Joseph. She immediately expresses, she's looked upon him, she expresses her desire to be with him. It's all, it's pretty brazen and blunt the way that she speaks to him. And remember, she is a powerful woman. And in theory, Joseph is her servant. I mean, he serves her husband. So it's a precarious situation. Joseph responds and he says, behold, I mean, our our English translations say behold. A lot of times we get common vernacular. It's like, okay, look. My master does not concern himself with anything because of me. No one is greater in this house than I am. And the only thing that Potiphar has withheld from me is you because you're his wife. And then he says, how could I do this evil thing and sin against God? Now that is an intriguing response. And it lets us in on some of the ways that God has clearly worked in Joseph through these difficult circumstances that he's experienced. He, in this interchange with Potiphar's wife, demonstrates that he has a wise and broad perspective. He's aware. He's thoughtful. He's like, look, this is going really well in the household. Why would I ruin that on the one hand? But then he goes and makes it clear that he understands that it would be sin to do this. It would be wrong to do it. And why would I do this evil thing and sin against God? Now, remember, Joseph does not have the two tables of the law in front of him. But this is a very good love of God, love of neighbor response that he demonstrates here. And frankly, it's a refreshing and encouraging response in light of all of the things that we're used to seeing in Genesis. It's different. This is like as you read this and you look at how he responds It is self-evidently good. This kind of piety that the Lord has worked in Joseph is good on the face of it. It's good to live and think this way. And God is the one who has worked this in this man. Now, for Potiphar's wife, for her part, Joseph has just simply now become a conquest. She stays after him. We're told that, that she speaks to him day after day, asking him to come and lie with her. Eventually, it all culminates in this incident where one day Joseph is in the house and nobody else is in the house. Potiphar's wife is obviously there. She grabs him and his outer garment is removed from him and he flees the scene. And it's at this point that Potiphar's wife lies and completely reverses the entire situation. She screams to draw attention. 
She tells the other servants that Joseph came in to try to rape her. So she flips it on Joseph and kind of blames her husband because she's like, my husband brought this Hebrew guy in here and this is what's happened. Potiphar then gets home and his wife lies to him. And this results in Joseph being put in prison. Falsely accused, wrongly imprisoned. Now it's notable that Joseph was not put to death, frankly, because that would have been fairly normal in a situation like this. A high-ranking officer such as Potiphar was, his wife making this kind of accusation against a servant, it would have been pretty normal for Joseph to die. Perhaps he didn't because Potiphar had affection for him. We're not told. Perhaps it was because Joseph reasoned and defended himself and Potiphar trusted him to a degree. We can certainly say that he was not put to death because God was watching over him. We're told that even in prison, God is with Joseph giving him favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison and showing Joseph steadfast love. In other words, God has not left his child. He doesn't ever do that. He doesn't leave his people. It's a good time for me to just go ahead and say this now, and I think we're going to be, in a lot of ways, meditating on this truth at various points through the rest of the sermon. There are things that we don't and frankly cannot understand about God's providence. But it is a great comfort to know that when it comes to God's love, God's care, and God's purposes for us, He is never thwarted. And He is never absent. And as we will think about more later, God, not only is He showing steadfast love to Joseph in this situation, He is showing steadfast love and faithfulness to a lot of people, us included, because he's at work through all of this to bring about redemption. We're going to keep thinking about that. This brings us to chapter 40. Joseph, you can reason this. You can kind of piece this together. Joseph, at this point, when chapter 40 begins, and we're going to hear this incident of the dreams um, of the cupbearer and the baker, at that point, When those guys have those dreams and he interprets them, he's 28 years old. Now, remember, he was sold into slavery at 17. We're not told. It's 11 years. We're not told how many of those 11 years he spent in Potiphar's household and how many years were in jail. We're not told that. But you can see the beginning of chapter 40 sometime after this. I mean, so it's not like he's just in jail for a month or two. It's probably years. So... Some time has passed. Joseph is in prison. And there are these two high-ranking employees of Pharaoh who are also put in jail. The cupbearer who would have been in charge of the king's wine and the baker who would have been in charge of the king's bread. The captain of the guard has Joseph attending to these guys. Remember, Joseph is in a very favorable position even within the prison complex. So he's attending to these two dudes. And one night, they both have dreams. The next morning, when Joseph comes to check on them, they're upset. He asks them, what's bothering you today? And they effectively tell him. It's like, well, we don't have anybody. We have these dreams. We don't have anybody to interpret them for us. I mean, they probably would have had magicians and stuff, you know, in the king's house. Don't have magicians in prison. So nobody can interpret our dreams for us. So Joseph, again ready with the right thing to say. Do not interpretations belong to God? Why? Yes. Yes, they do, actually. And he says, Basically, lay them on me, guys. Get, tell me what you dreamed. 
So the cupbearer goes first. He says that in his dream there was a vine, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as this vine budded, its blossoms shot forth, and clusters of grapes like immediately ripened. He had Pharaoh's cup in his hand. He crushed, he pressed the grapes, and he gives the cup to Pharaoh. Then Joseph interprets his dream. He says, this is what's going on here. The three branches are three days. In three days' time, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and he's going to restore you to your former position. And then he says, only I ask you this, remember me when it goes well with you. Remember me and put in a good word with Pharaoh for me. Because I was stolen out of my homeland and even here I've been wrongfully imprisoned. I haven't done anything that would result in this. I don't deserve this. Remember me. The baker sees that the cupbearer got a favorable interpretation from Joseph. So he's like, well, let me give this a shot. I'll tell him my dream. He says, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, I had all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But here's the thing. There were birds that were eating out of the basket. So Joseph says, okay, here's the interpretation of this dream. The three baskets are again three days. In three days' time, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head, but not to restore you. He's going to lift up your head to execute you. And on the third day, all of this comes to pass at Pharaoh's birthday celebration. And we're told at the very end of chapter 40 that the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. In the scripture, remember this, that the word to remember is not just some mental activity when it comes to scripture. To remember biblically is to act upon promises made. The cupbearer will forget Joseph, but God won't. God won't. Now, having said that, two years are about to pass. Two years. And nothing, because you see the very first words of chapter 41, we're going there in a minute, after two whole years. So we're going to think about this. This brings us to our first reflection. We're going to reflect together on God's work in Joseph's life and how God sanctifies his people. God's work in Joseph's life and how God sanctifies his people. Now, when I say sanctify or sanctification, what I am referring to is the work of God by his spirit in the lives of his people to transform us, to transform them into the likeness of Christ or to transform us and conform us even to his law. All right. God has worked in Joseph's life, his providence, which we confessed earlier, it's how he governs and reigns over all things and accomplishes his purposes. His providence has been all over Joseph's life. He has watched over this man. He has given him favor in the eyes of important men, and he's going to continue to do both. And there is also a lot of hard. This man was sold into slavery, falsely accused unjustly imprisoned. Like that's the kind of hard that movies are made about, right? And then we read of this whole situation where 
these two guys, Pharaoh's servants, they happen to be in jail and they have these dreams and Joseph interprets them. One of these guys is going to be restored to working right alongside Pharaoh again. And there's a glimmer of hope. There's some light at the end of the tunnel. Only to be followed by two years of nothing. It's like, here's the dream. Just kind of hold that out there for a minute and then take it away. We've already thought about how God had worked in Joseph, as was evidenced in his response to Potiphar's wife. This guy, as we thought about last week, at one time was immature, had a little bit of a golden child syndrome. Well, God had done some things in his life, and he had done it through trial. Him being sold into slavery would have no doubt been a horrific experience for him. And now, in these two years of silence, when it looked like there was hope, you know, just when he thought he might be getting out of jail, just when he thought his fortunes might be changing, nothing. It's like it's getting piled on. And then, you know, remember these dreams, right, that he had as a teenager. He had these dreams earlier in his life where he's going to be in authority somehow. His brothers, his whole household's going to bow down to him. And I would suspect that from Joseph's perspective, as he sits there in jail, nothing happening, it's like none of this is coming to pass. None of these things that I thought would happen are happening. Joseph is finding himself in the lowest place that God's people find themselves. God has made promises And everything in our lives preaches a different word. It's like, God, you say that you love me and you're with me and you're for me and you're going to save me and you're going to do all these things, but here's my life. I trust that many in the room have felt that way at points, if not all of us. You may be there this morning. Through his providence, God works in our lives to sanctify us. But two big things about that. One, God often works through pain, through suffering, trial, hardship, calamity, those things. And two, when he works this way, the goal is to produce steadfastness in us. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that God works through pain to produce steadfastness. Why? Well, he's the God who wounds in order to heal. He's the God who crushes in order to make whole. He's the God who kills in order to make alive. He's the God who buries in order to resurrect. But is there more we can say about this? Because I trust this resonates with your experience. It does mine. Yes, there is a lot we can say. This is all very James 1. Very. Many in the room will know what I mean by saying that. When James will write and say, consider it joy when you encounter, when you meet trials of various kinds. For this is what God is doing in you. He's producing steadfastness in you. Now, a few words on this. 
Trials, suffering, calamity, hardship. Those things in and of themselves are not good. Like, let's be straight up about it. Because I think sometimes, in the interest of sounding pious, Christians talk or have been taught to talk as though terrible things are good. They're not in and of themselves good. The miracle, the good, is what God does through them, in us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a big difference. This is why we need not say something crazy like, my cancer is a gift to me. It is not a gift. It's a trial. And God is faithful. And he is at work even in the trial. That is a statement about how great God is, not about how good trials and suffering and calamity are. What does God produce through these things, trials and pain and suffering? He produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has everything to do with the preservation and the strengthening of our faith, trust, and reliance upon God in spite of circumstance. No wonder. James tells us right after he says, count it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, for in these things God is producing steadfastness in you. No wonder the next verse tells us to pray for wisdom. My goodness, how much we need wisdom. We need a godly perspective on our pain. Now, as we continue to think about this and how God worked in Joseph's life through suffering and pain and disappointment, what is it that trial, hardship, suffering, and calamity all have in common? Well, they're things that we would never sign up for. They are things that we would never have planned. They are things that we most often could never have foreseen. And they are things that we would change if we could. And God uses precisely these things to produce steadfastness in his children. That should teach us something very important that is hope-giving in the midst of any circumstance we're going through, and that is that God not only is faithful to us, but it is God who sanctifies us. I mean, if one of the primary ways that I am grown and sanctified in this life is through stuff I would never have planned and couldn't foresee, that I would have never signed up for if I knew, and that I would change if I could, it's clear that God is the one who is driving this thing. He is the one who does the work. Now, when we talk this way, people begin to lose their minds. They begin to freak out. It's like, all right, brother, look, are you saying that we just sit on our hands and do nothing? No, that's not what I'm saying. We participate in the sanctification that God is working in us, like we participate in life by being alive. We are now alive and have been united with Christ. And so we participate. This, though, is a very Philippians 3, Philippians 2 kind of reality. Philippians 3.12, where Paul will say that I strive to take hold of eternal life of resurrection because Christ has taken hold of me. We work out, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, right? We work out our salvation because it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
God works and therefore I will. God works and therefore I do stuff. Am I doing stuff? Yes. But who's doing stuff? God. Last couple of thoughts about sanctification and how God works in his people, how he even worked in Joseph as we're thinking about his circumstances. Remember the words of Christ in John 12. Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that seeds are planted into the earth to die in order to produce fruit. This is what happens in the lives of God's people. It happens in our lives. We are planted into the earth as seeds to die. And the fruit that God produces is beyond what we could imagine. Praise be to his name. What's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is God did all this in Joseph's life and he will do it in yours. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful He will surely do it. Those of us who love God will receive the crown of life because God is faithful. I don't know about you, but far from leading me to apathy, that puts steam in my stride, as they used to say, to walk out of here today seeking to love you and pursue righteousness and flee from sin. Because God is in this. Amen? Amen. This brings us to chapter 41. Chapter 41. Here we go. Two years have passed. We've thought about that. Everybody else has been having dreams. It's Pharaoh's turn. He's going to have some dreams. Two of them, to be precise. Pharaoh's dreams, you know, he's standing by the Nile. He sees these cows come up out of the Nile. They're plumpy, plump, plump and healthy. Not plumpy. Plump and healthy. Fat, robust cows, right? And they start to feed And then he sees these other really ugly, thin, like unhealthy looking cows come out of the Nile. And these thin, ugly cows eat the healthy ones. He wakes up. Has another, falls back to sleep, has another dream. He sees this ear of grain sprouting. It's really healthy looking. Then he sees this other ear of grain. There's like seven of them on each, right? And these other seven are blighted and they don't look good. And then these blighted ones eat up the healthy ones. He wakes up. And as they used to say, he was terribly vexed. He was perplexed that next morning. Doesn't know what to do. Doesn't know what these dreams mean. So he calls all of his magicians and all of his wise men, brings them in, wants interpretation. They can't do it. So then the cupbearer, our buddy the cupbearer, reemerges in verse 9 of chapter 41. And he says, oh man, I, I realize that I've messed up. I remember two years ago when I was in jail. You remember when all that happened with me and the baker and we were in jail? I remember that there was this young Hebrew dude in jail with us who interpreted our dreams. And everything that he said to us happened. You remember. You restored me and you executed the baker. It's exactly what he said would happen. What's wild is that on the basis of the cupbearer's testimony alone, Pharaoh says, all right, go get that guy and bring him. It's pretty wild. God's hand is in this, right? So that happens. Joseph is brought, he's shaved, and he gets new clothes, and he goes in to see Pharaoh. So Pharaoh recounts his dreams to Joseph. He says everything that we just thought about. The plump cows, the the ugly thin cows, the healthy looking grain, the ugly thin blighted grain, and 
how the ugly thin ones eat the healthy ones, and he doesn't know what it means. And there's seven of everything, you know. And so after that, Joseph is going to interpret the dreams back to Pharaoh. And he says, all right, your, your dreams are one. You've had two dreams, but it means the same thing. Effectively, these healthy cows and this healthy grain, that's seven years of plenty that's coming. The unhealthy cows and the unhealthy grain, seven years of each and seven cows of each, right? That's seven years of famine that's coming after. And the fact that the thin ones ate the fat ones and it didn't even look like they'd eaten anything means that the famine's going to be so bad that people aren't even going to remember the good times because it's going to be so rough. And then he says the fact that you've had two dreams, the fact that it's double just means that it's certain and it's happening soon. So that's the interpretation. Without even pausing, without even hitting the stop button, he just goes right on, Joseph does, to suggest to Pharaoh what he needs to do. He just tells him. Let Pharaoh set a wise and discerning man over the land of Egypt, and a portion of the produce from the good years each year should be stored up for the years of famine. Pharaoh and his servants, they're pleased by this suggestion. Pharaoh kind of asks a question to the group, like, do we know a guy like this? But then he just turns right to Joseph and says, look, you know, God has shown you all this stuff, and nobody's as wise and discerning as you. You're going to be that guy. You're going to be the guy. You're going to be elevated to my right hand. Only I'm going to be greater than you in the whole land of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. You're going to basically be my vice ruler. Again, God's providence, God's hand is all over this. This is very remarkable in terms of how it's going down. Then Joseph is given an Egyptian name by Pharaoh. He's given an Egyptian wife. Like he has a new life in one sense. He sets out then to begin executing the plan to get ready for the famine that's coming. And we're told at this point that he was 30 years old. So that's where I did my math. You know, 30 years minus two is 28 to four. Anyway, I just like to show you how I came up with that. Um, he's going to execute the plan. He sets about this. The seven years of abundance are happening a lot of grain is being stored up, so much so that it can't even be counted, can't even be measured anymore. There's a lot of grain. During those seven years of plenty before the famine comes, Joseph also has two sons. The first one he names Manasseh. And he names him that. He says, for God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that he's literally forgotten his father's house. He's going to cry. I mean, the first time he meets his brothers, he's going to be overcome with emotion, right? But it indicates, at least perhaps, that the Lord has helped him process what has happened. He's come to terms with it. And in part, this almost might be one of those times where you name your child this, and it's effectively almost a prayer to God, right? Like, may it be this way. Then he has another son who he names Ephraim. For, he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. It's a pretty straightforward statement of God's faithful to him in the midst of pain. God's faithfulness, I should say, in the midst of suffering, right? Then the famine comes. When the Egyptian people cry to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh sends them to Joseph, sends the whole nation to him. Joseph sells them the grain that he stored up. And then we learn in the closing verses of chapter 41 that the famine has not only hit Egypt really hard, it's affected the whole earth, the text says. And that literally all the earth, that's the language, all of the earth is coming to Egypt, to Joseph in particular, to buy grain. It's very interesting. It seems that Israel and his household 
will be coming to Egypt. And it just so happened this way. Right. Which brings us to our second reflection. And we're going to reflect together on God's providence from the perspective of redemption. God's providence from the perspective of redemption. We thought about God's providence and how he sanctifies his people. Now providence and redemption. So think about this. Think about, I'm just going to rattle some stuff off that happened. Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers who hated him and were jealous of him. Joseph just happening to be bought by a man named Potiphar. Joseph's unjust imprisonment on the account of false accusation. The interpretation of dreams of Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and baker who just so happened to be in the same jail. Pharaoh then having dreams that nobody can interpret. and A man who had forgotten Joseph suddenly remembering him. Joseph then being set over all the land of Egypt by Pharaoh. Then the actual natural stuff of seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, coupled with Joseph's plan to store grain and then sell it. All of that. All of that is what results in Israel coming to Egypt. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, God had made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 15. I'm going to test your recall here. God had said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, and 14, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Yes, they would. Yes, they would. This, like everything that God is doing, is all a part of God's plan to save his people. It's anything but arbitrary. Nothing is when it comes to God. I think, though, I trust when I say that, that nothing is arbitrary when it comes to God. Pretty much every, every head in the room is going to nod. and going to be like, yep, I agree with you, man. God's not arbitrary. He's sovereign. He's purposeful. But I think many times we are prone to seeing events and happenings in the Bible as perhaps significant, but not as necessarily related. Christ and his work are in view in everything that is happening with Joseph and in everything that is happening to bring Israel down to Egypt. And if, listen, if all of this doesn't happen, if Israel doesn't end up in Egypt, there's no Passover. There's no Exodus. Israel ending up in Egypt is massive in the scope of redemptive history. We're going to think about that. And we're going to think about why. First of all, the Passover. I trust most in the room are familiar with what I'm talking about. The Passover, you remember, is the tenth and final plague that the Lord says, promises, and brings upon Egypt in order to set his people free in the Exodus. He says that he would put to death the firstborn of every household and of all livestock in the land of Egypt. But then he instructed his people Israel through Moses to take a lamb into their households and kill it. And to take the blood of this lamb and put it on the doorposts of their houses. And then when the Lord would come in judgment, 
and pass through the land of Egypt to put to death all the firstborn in one night. He said this about the blood and about the lamb and about what happened. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, this is God talking, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, consider Christ, the one of whom John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who the Apostle Paul called our Passover Lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. His blood, just like the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts, would shield God's people from the judgment and wrath of God, so too with the blood of Christ that covers the saints. God is happy to look upon Christ, to look upon the blood and pardon us. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's Passover kind of language. Jesus, when he came on earth, he did a lot of ministry. We rejoice here often in how he kept the law perfectly. He obeyed God every moment and therefore fulfilled the law and accomplished righteousness for us. But we also love to rejoice and proclaim that not only did Christ fulfill the requirements of the law, Christ fulfilled the penalty of the law, that lawbreakers must pay. He came as a sinless sacrifice and made satisfaction for sin. In his last night on earth, what's happening? What week is it? It's Passover. His last night on earth, what does he institute? The Lord's Supper. He does it when he's eating Passover with his disciples. The Lord's Supper, the meal of the new covenant, is the fulfillment of the Passover meal, saints. Jesus said when he instituted that meal that he would not eat the Passover meal again until the kingdom of God comes. And what he meant by that is the consummation of redemption at the end of history. I won't eat this meal again until redemption is consummated. And he's talking there about the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And when the saints are glorified and are finally with him and we're going to sit and eat a meal together, there will be a feast and a celebration. That is the fulfillment of the Lord's Supper, which is a fulfillment of the Passover meal. People sometimes will read Exodus 12 and they will see the words of God that we should observe the Passover forever. And they trip up on that. Christians will say, but brother, shouldn't we be observing Passover? God says we should observe it forever. To which the answer is, brother, sister, we do. We are observing it forever in that we are trusting the one who is the fulfillment of the whole thing and this table that we come to. It's a fulfillment of that meal, and we're going to eat a meal one day that will have fulfilled all of it. Right, so that's Passover. That, that, none of that happens if Israel doesn't go down to Egypt, right? Of course God doesn't deal in hypotheticals. He's orchestrating this. But secondly, consider the Exodus. Many know that story. It's a wonderful story where the Lord is going to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. Remember he does this. 
tenth plague comes, there's death everywhere in Egypt because God puts to death the firstborn in every household. There was not, the language is just striking. There was not a household in which there was not a dead body. This happens, and Pharaoh finally says, go. Let the let them go. And so they're making their way out of Egypt. They are sojourning. They've, they've gone some distance, and they're encamped at the Red Sea. We know the story. There's nowhere they can go. Pharaoh, God stirs up Pharaoh's heart so that he and his army pursue the Israelites. And then through Moses, the Lord parts the waters of the Red Sea so that his people can walk through. The Egyptian army pursues them through the parted waters, and God guarded his people. The angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud relocate from the front of the pack to the back to be between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It's a beautiful picture of the Lord's protection. He stands between his people and their enemies, right? Then he throws the Egyptian army into a panic. He binds the wheels of their chariots so that they can't make progress. And then once the Israelites are safely through, the Lord through Moses causes the waters to come back. The Egyptian army is drowned in the waters, every single man. God's people were rescued. They were brought safely through water, which happens over and over again in the scripture. Their enemy was defeated because the Lord had fought for them. This is what Moses said. The Lord would repeatedly remind his people of what he had done for them in the Exodus throughout the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you are, it's shocking how many times over and over again the Lord says, remember what I did for you in Egypt. Remember, remember, remember what I did. He should talk like that. It is the second greatest work of deliverance in the history of the world. And it pointed to the greatest one. That's its significant piece. This most significant thing about the Exodus is not the Exodus itself. It's what the Exodus points to. Which brings us to Jesus. Jesus was known to miraculously cross bodies of water. And he was known to miraculously then feed people in a desolate place. Sounds a lot like what God did back in the wilderness, back in the Exodus. And then there's the whole conversation that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah when he's transfigured. And he talks to them about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So track with me. We want to learn to understand and study the scriptures better. When we read the Bible and when we see all of these seemingly crazy and very providential things that result in the people of Israel going down to Egypt, we should ask why. And the answer is, God is going to do some things for his people down in Egypt. And these things he did in Egypt teach us about the greatest thing that he would ever do for us. And that is to rescue us from bondage, not to some earthly power. But to rescue us from bondage to sin and death and the devil. And he would do that through the work of Christ in our place. In Christ, we are set free from the power of sin. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Well, in Christ, Galatians 2, we died to the law. His death is our death. He fulfilled the law's penalty like we thought about a minute ago. How so? 
He died the death a lawbreaker deserves, and in him we died too. That's how we can be free from the condemnation of the law that sin brings upon us. We're set free from the power of sin. Jesus also took on flesh, became a man, did everything that he did in order to destroy death and the devil. Listen to these words from Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Thank God for Jesus. And oh, how he loves us. Right? He took on flesh because the children have flesh and blood. The children are afraid of death, so he conquered it. The children are in bondage to the one who has the power of death, namely the devil, so he conquered him. Praise God indeed. Amen. Consider these words and how we have been rescued. Think about what we were and what God has done. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's slavery. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Saints, we have been rescued. Now on all of this, this Passover stuff and this Exodus stuff, we need to get this straight in our brains. All right, this matters, what I'm about to say. There's a distinction that makes a lot of difference. It is not that the people of Israel went to Egypt and the Passover happened and the Exodus was a thing and then God sent Jesus to fulfill it. No. The people went to Egypt in the first place. The Passover happened in the first place. And the Exodus was a thing in the first place because Jesus was coming. There's a difference. Jesus is ultimate in the universe, and he's ultimate in these scriptures. Now, briefly, as we conclude, I've got a little bit of a heading on this conclusion. It's that God is a savior, and his timing is interesting. God is a savior, and his timing is interesting. And I don't mean to be cute by this at all. This is not a cute reflection and conclusion. What I'm trying to communicate here is that it is precisely when we are confident that the light is going out on redemption that God shows up. It happens over and over again in the Bible. When it looks like all is lost, everything's done, it's ruined. Israel is going to be annihilated. David's going to be killed by Goliath. You fill in the blank. God shows up in those moments. 
even think about this incident here with Joseph. You remember what we thought about in recent weeks, right? About how Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph and Joseph was his favorite son. And he is told a lie by his other sons that Joseph's dead. I mean, even from Jacob's perspective, he thinks my son's life is lost. And in reality, God is working to save everyone's life through this. It is precisely when we are certain that everything is lost that God shows up as Savior. Think back to Joseph in prison. You remember the cupbearer forgot him. But God had not forgotten him. God would remember Joseph. God would remember him and act on his behalf, act for him and act through him in order to save many. There are numerous places in scripture where God remembers his people. We thought about this in the aftermath of the flood. God remembered Noah. And when God remembers his people, he acts upon his promises to save his people. And I don't know if I've always thought about it this way. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. What we are about to do in coming to this table, this meal that we're going to partake of together, the Lord's Supper. You remember the words that Jesus spoke, some of the words he spoke when he instituted this meal. He said, do this in what? Remembrance of me, or quite literally, do this in my remembrance. Saints, it's a pretty sweet thought that in the table, we are remembering when God remembered us. We are remembering when God remembered us and acted upon every promise that he'd ever made to save his people. We have quite a savior. From our perspective, it might not have seemed to make sense always how God has worked and what he's done. Though we didn't fully understand. Though God's people have not fully understood according to God's plan and through his providence while we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as has been expressed in the service already today, we're thankful. We are thankful for our Savior. The one who has experienced things that we experience, has been tempted as we are tempted, yet he is without sin. The one who is so compassionate and loves us so much that he took on flesh and became like us in order to save us and rescue us from the things that we're enslaved to. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us faith in Christ and that you would stir our affections for him. We pray that through the difficulties and the ups and downs of our lives, that you would continue to work in us as you always have in the lives of your people to produce steadfastness in us. We pray that you would use this supper that we are about to partake of and the songs that we are yet to sing to accomplish those good and holy purposes in us. Do this, we ask, for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.